Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Prince podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss positioning and how to express positioning through content, sales pitches, and a lot more. I'm here once again with the obviously awesome queen of positioning, April Dunford, after almost two years. The last time around when we met, I was like a kid in a candy store with a ton of questions on positioning. And two years later, the curiosity isn't any less. So hey ho, let's go. April, I'm so happy to have you here. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I'm thrilled. Let's let's get started. You know, probably a lot of people have asked you this multiple times in probably multiple different ways. And I do remember the fishing net for tuna example that we discussed the last time. So <laughs> let's... Uh, <laughs> I'm still using that one. Yes. Someday yes. I'm going to come up with a better example than that one. But yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. But let's approach this from a SaaS lens, you know, assuming that everybody starts with uh, picking a lane on the initial market, going with a hunch. At what stage does a SaaS company get ready for positioning? Well, you know, I, I think that like a lot of people come to me and they've not launched yet and they don't yeah. have any customers yet. And they'll say, you know, April, I'm really stressed out about the positioning. I want to make it perfect before we launch. And I think that's impossible. And I think you do the best job you can before you launch in developing a positioning thesis. And so the positioning thesis says, I think these are my competitors. I think this is how I'm different. Therefore, this is the value I can deliver. No one else can. Yeah. Therefore, these are the customers that are going to love it. Therefore, this is the market we're going to go win. But it's your best guess. And so I actually think internally, it's good to do that exercise and write it all down and say, this is our thesis. But externally, I think it's okay to launch the product and say, you know, we, we don't really know what it is yeah. and, and keep the positioning a little bit loose because you want to, you want to feel a little bit of market pull and you don't necessarily want to close off a market by having your positioning be so tight that folks around the edges of your position might say, oh, well, that's not for me. I'm not even going to try that thing out. Yeah. So after you've had a first wave of customers, however, you should be in a position where that thesis is at least somewhat validated. And now you're feeling pretty good about it. Like, yep, we know, we know who we compete with. We know how we're different. We know how we win. We know what, you know what the profile of a good fit customer looks like. At that point, you can actually tighten it up and then run right at it. So yeah. I think people can chill out about the positioning, you know, when they first launch and and through this first wave of customers, like it's going to feel terrible though. Like that's what I tell people, like it's not going to feel good because <laughs> mushy positioning does not feel good. So when you launch it, you're going to be telling this story that's like, Hey, I got this thing. It's for lots of people. I don't know. You know, and, and, and if you have a person in charge of selling stuff, the salesperson's going to hate it, but the alternative is if we tighten it up too much, uh, we may not learn what we need to learn in this first wave of customers. I think we need to treat the first wave like we're going to validate the thesis or not. And then, you know, and now we know where to go. And then later we're going to tighten it up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. After COVID, the first wave, second wave is scary to hear. <laughs> but 
See, I did that without telling the fish story either. So that you know, normally I would have got into the fishing net stuff, but for you, no. <laughs> no that. But but April, um, when you spoke about the list of customers, like, do you have a number saying fifty customers, twenty five customers? What is the average that you would go for? It's a good question, and I get asked this one a lot, right? Like, how many? Like, how do we know? Yeah. And and it part of it just depends on like your velocity, right? Like, how many deals are you doing, and how many can you get through? And that depends a bit on how big are these deals, how long does it take to actually close a deal, and then get them deployed. And so, the more enterprisey you get, the lower that number of deals is, and the more you know, the, the the more you're doing this zero touch, lots of transactions thing, you know, I think you need more of those deals in order to see the patterns. But the key is you've got to a point where if someone said, hey, like, we're going to die next week if you don't close three deals, you kind of got an idea of what kind of companies you would go chase to go yeah. get those three deals. And so you sort of, you know, you've, you've started to see the patterns in who loves your stuff and why enough that you feel like, Oh, we're pretty smart about this. Like we know yeah. these kind of customers pick us every time and they pick us for these reasons. Like once you start feeling that, then I think you can, you can tighten up and run at it. As long as that market looks like it's good enough to support your short-term sales goals. Now yeah. you might get to that point where you say, Oh yeah, we really get it. But it's only people in the south side of Albuquerque whose last <laughs> names are Smith. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's not, you know, we, we could tighten up and chase that. But it's actually not a big enough target market to hit our short term sales goals. Then I think maybe you got a product problem and you might need to go back to the product drawing board on there. But yeah. if you say, look, like we know this, we only need to make. 20, 30 deals in the next two quarters, we could run just at this. We know these people are the easiest to close and we just chase them. And then once we feel like we've saturated that, then we'll figure out how do we widen the aperture a little bit on who we're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. No, love that. That's probably a story that uh, resonates a lot with founders. But here's something interesting, right? So I often hear the story from, say, a lot of CEOs. CEOs of companies tell me, hey, yeah, put me in front of a prospect and, you know, I can talk exactly to their problem. And they go, holy shit, nine out of 10 times. But when they hear the recordings of, say, their VP of sales or VP of marketing, and they are like, hey, these guys don't get it. You know, is it an alignment problem there? Or is it something that, uh, you know, they have not got their positioning right? So how do you go from the founder-led to making sure that everybody gets it? Yeah, I like... Personally, I don't think that's a positioning problem or an alignment problem. I think it's a storytelling problem. I, I think a lot of times what we've got is the, the founder is really good at this stuff, yeah. you know, because they've done it. Like a lot of times the founder has done the first, you know, bunch of deals. And so the founders got this pitch honed to perfection, but they didn't actually build that pitch in a structured way. Like they just trial and error a bunch of stuff until, yeah, I know how to tell this story. Often the story has a very personal element to it. Yeah. You know, it includes kind of the founder origin story and it says, here's how I started. And then I did this and then I made a mistake and then this happened and then this thing. And it ends up being very compelling for that reason too. And then you go to the sales team and they sort of listen to that story and go, well, I can't tell that story. Yeah. So they gotta, they gotta figure out how to tell another story or a story that's kind of like that, but maybe misses a bunch of the key elements. And so this is a thing I've seen over and over again, where, you know, the founder will come to me and say, I think I got this positioning problem. Like I listen to what's going on at sales 
And I don't like that. I see what's happening in the marketing that we're doing. And that's not the way I tell the story. And so often what we've got is just an alignment problem. Like the founder's got it, but it's all in her head. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And nobody else really understands it. And so in the work I do, we're we're getting a cross-functional team together to work through positioning. And the big thing we're going for is an agreement and alignment across the team on here's how, you know, here's who we compete with. Here's how we're different. Here's the value only we can deliver. This is the market we're going after. And, and importantly, here's how we tell the story. So I got really interested in this idea of how do we actually build a structured sales pitch? Because I think companies are so bad at this. Like a lot of times the founder comes in and tells this great story, but then what you're hearing over in sales is not a story at all. It's like a feature walkthrough, feature, 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 feature. Here's a bunch of feature. There's another feature. We should have a structure that enables any company to build a very compelling story, even if it's not the founder telling it. I mean, I especially if it's not the founder <laughs> telling it, so that we can teach sales teams how to do this very compelling story in a first substantive call with a client. Yeah, yeah. No, I've gone through this many number of times as part of this, uh, you know, leadership meetings, and everybody, the CS team has an entirely different idea. The marketing VP has a different idea. And then you're like, okay, though I'm explaining, these people still come with their mindsets because that's what they are hearing. How do I convince everybody to be on board? So yeah, uh, here's here's another uh, you know interesting aspect that often makes me wonder when I look at somebody like you, you know, after probably helping more than 200 companies with their positioning, what is your typical qualifier like? You know, how do you identify that, hey, this company is ready for me to work with versus somebody is approaching, but I should qualify them out? Well, so there's a handful of things that I qualify for. So the first one is, you know, if the company's too early, so haven't had that first wave of customers through, and I don't think it's, I don't think the timing's right to tighten the positioning. I think they should keep it loose and run and just go get some more deals and run that first wave through until we see the pattern. So if I don't feel like the customer's far enough along or the, the, the startup is far enough along, then I think, you know, too early for me, you know, call me in six months, call me in a year. Right. Sometimes companies come to me and they, I don't think they have a positioning problem. They got other problems. <laughs> and so sometimes I think there's um, a marketing execution problem. And, and yeah. so, you know, so, so that kind of sounds like this. So the company comes and they say, look, like, you know, every customer that we get in the pipeline, we close them. Like we yeah. close them all. Our close rates are really high. Everybody gets it on a first sales call. We close right away. Deals cycles are really short. You know, we just don't get enough of them through. Now that's often an awareness problem, right? Yeah. So it's a marketing execution problem. You're just not getting enough leads into the pipeline. Or maybe if you're doing outbound selling, you know, you got an outbound sales tactics problem or something, target yeah. account selling problem. But, you know, but if everything's moving fast through the pipeline, I don't think that's a positioning problem. So I qualify those out because I just do positioning stuff. If it's not a positioning problem, I can't help you. And there's lots of problems you can have that are not positioning problems. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of those get qualified out. And then, you know, I have preferences. Like like my background is very B2B. A lot of what we do is focused on the sales team and how to get the sales team enabled to tell the story. So if you don't have a sales team 
involved in the deal at all. I usually qualify those out like because it's just not really in the sweet spot of what I do. And then I have a preference, you know, I have lots of preferences. So like, you know, I have a preference for companies that are selling something that's actually really complicated. <laughs> like I love those. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in, in on the database side of the house selling stuff that's really kind of technical and complicated. And those are very satisfying when you can get a really nice, clean story around that that has everybody going, yeah, yeah, I get it. That's good. And so yeah. I love those ones. And then, you know, and then I think the other, the other qualification is, you know, are we going to do good work together? Like sometimes mm. you just got to kind of vibe with the team. And if, yeah. you, if you're not vibing with the team, like I, I'm in a luxurious place right now as a consultant in that I'm pretty busy. And so if the vibes are off, I'm a bit like, ah, you could probably find another person to work with <laughs> that's going to vibe with you better. This one isn't maybe for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent resonate with that one at least because Many a times for us, you know, when we work with our uh, clients for content marketing and we get on the first call, in that very first call, we know that, okay, these guys might have a budget, but we are not going to have a great time working together. It doesn't feel great. I'm an I'm a old lady at this point. I'm like, you know, there's only so many more of these I'm going to do in my life. And like, they're all going to be great. <laughs> and so if I get on the call and I'm like, yeah, this doesn't seem like it's a real fit. I'm like, I'm very happy to just say, you know what? There's, there's lots of other people do work like this. You can find them. It's just not going <laughs> to no, be that's, me. That's not a luxury everybody has, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It wasn't like that when I started in consulting. It is now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you spoke about uh, you enjoying uh, solving complicated uh, positioning problems, especially when the company is doing something that's hard to understand. So let's say sometimes you're trying to position a product that solves a problem that most people don't even realize that they have. So how do you go about it? Just paint a picture of how that conversation goes. Yeah. So, and this is quite common actually for really innovative tech products. Yeah. Uh, you know, often the, the, the company starts with this insight, like they have this insight into the market that the majority of buyers don't even know this about their own business. Yeah. They take this posture of we're teachers, right? We're, we're here to teach you about yeah. something about your business that, that maybe you're not totally aware of. And so in those cases, I think um, it's important in marketing, but especially in a first sales call to kind of paint a picture of the world that says, that says, Hey, like, you, you know, we see this thing and right now you might feel that this is the problem, but we see this kind of problem behind the problem or problem inside the problem. And we have to start with our insight and make sure that the customer really understands that. Yeah. Like, why did we come to this conclusion and no one in the market did? What is it that the customer doesn't know that we understand that if they understood it, they would really get our value? And so I think if we can really nail that, then we can, then we can kind of wake up the customer to this, ah, I never actually looked at that that way. And then take them on this little journey. That's a bit like, you know, well, let's look at what you're doing today and let's look at the pluses and minuses of that. And let's look, you have other ways of approaching this thing. And let's look at the, the good parts and the bad parts of all the other alternative approaches to solving this issue. And so I think that sales teams that do really well, and in fact, the, the data on this stuff backs me up, like sales reps that are very good at taking the customer along this journey, close more deals, sell more stuff, sell bigger deals. Yeah. And so yeah. I believe in that a lot. 
A lot of my thinking was really influenced by Matthew Dixon's work. So first of all, with Challenger Sale and Challenger Customer, and then the new book he's got out called The Jolt Effect, really digs into the data on this, which I love. And so this isn't just my opinion. This is actually backed up by all this data. So they, you know, so they analyzed like millions of sales calls and looked at what works and what doesn't work. And this concept of being able to paint a picture for the customer, make a recommendation for what the customer needs to do in a way that's that the customer understands and showing the customer a path they can take. I think all of that stuff is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. But when I look at it as a marketer, you know, one of the fundamental things that I often think about is, well, when somebody uh, comes inbound and then they're having a conversation with the salesperson, yes, of course, they can go into depth and explain. But, you know, the job is also to drive pipeline. So I have to make a lot of people understand this at a mass level. So is it a content problem there? Or is it a education via content? Is that how you'd see it? Yeah. I mean, I think we have lots and lots of different ways that we can educate folks in a market. So obviously there's content, right? And I've seen, I've worked with companies have done an amazing job at this. Like one of my favorite examples right now is Postman. I don't know if you know them. They're like an API, an API development platform, but they've done a very good job of talking about, of educating the market on why building better quality APIs is actually really, really important. And they do that in lots of different ways. So, you know, their CEO is out on the conference circuit and he's given a talk at conferences about APIs. And, you know, we talk about software eating the world. Well, how does that happen? It happens with great APIs. What do we got to do to build great APIs? And so he has this concept of an API first world and he talks about that. They have a really great blog that digs into a bunch of this stuff. They have video series where they talk about this stuff. They have, if you go on their homepage, they have a graphic novel <laughs> that talks about, you know, what, the, what do we mean by an API first world? There's a little character, it's, it's the founder, you know, and he's walking you through the way they think about this stuff. So, you know, they have really great graphics where they explain, you know, here's what an API development platform is. And here's all this, this stuff that goes around it. Here's what it's not. Here's what it integrates with. Here's what it actually consumes. And so, you know, I think there's lots of ways to do this in content. And then I think, and then, you know, beyond that, I think it's really important that the story we're telling on the sales side, when the lead actually passes over in sales, that that's consistent and that we have the right materials to support the salespeople. So do I have customer success stories that actually tell that story in the same way we're telling it everywhere else? Like things like that, I, I think are easy wins. And instead what you see is you, you'll see a lot of teams where they went out and built a customer success story, but nobody actually questioned like, how are we actually going to use this? Like, is it used to handle, are we going to use this story to handle an objection? Are we using this story to prove that we can do a particular point of our value that we said we could do? Like, And instead, they're just treating it like it doesn't do anything more than have a logo on the website. Like, hey, here's these people and they used our stuff. <laughs> and so I think there's a lot of content goes into this in terms of how do we educate the market. Right, right. No, uh, what you just said also reminds me a lot of uh, the product marketing nightmares I've seen over the years. So how tough it is to translate this and get everybody aligned in communicating it in the same way. All right. So let's talk about uh, the other side. Let's say the positioning size is over and now everybody's aligned on what it is. Let's talk about what it means to execute on the positioning. What are the different platforms or how do you actually express the positioning to the world 
because 90% of the time what i also see is uh, except for the founders and the close set of team and the probably their dogs nobody else understands you know what their point of view is what their positioning is and uh, yeah it, things go to waste yeah so i think it's it's super important that we actually make it live across the company so the first thing we've got is you know the point of getting this cross functional team together and have everybody working together is that everybody in that cross functional team gets it and part of their job after the workshop is to go and take it back to their teams. This is also the reason why it's important that we don't just, you know, look at the component pieces of positioning, but actually stitch it together into a story because the story is how you're going to communicate it back to the teams. Everybody should know how to tell the story. Everybody should understand the story. In the work I do, we do a handful of things. So the first thing is once we've got the positioning and we've got the sales narrative that maps to that positioning, we'll go test it. And typically we'll do that, you know, by taking a sales rep or two, train them on the new story, take that out to qualified prospects, and then we'll do a bunch of cycles on it to see, is it landing? Do we need to tweak it? Once we've got a story that's been validated, we know it works in a sales pitch environment. Then we take that story plus the positioning and that goes over to marketing to work on messaging. So that's messaging for the homepage, messaging for anything else. I recommend that folks put that stuff together into a messaging document. So there is a single repository for the approved wording around, here's our value propositions. Here's how we talk about them. Here's the proof points. Here's, you know, we have a, a handful of key features that enable that value. Here's how we talk about those. We might have case studies and approved customer quotes and other things that get pulled in. And, but we have that in, in this kind of approved central document. And so I think once we have that, then we, we need to assign like the steward of positioning. So somebody needs to kind of own it. I mean, they don't own the creation of it because that's a team effort, but they own the enforcement of it. <laughs> and so they're a little bit like the positioning police. And so when people are building things or talking about stuff, and typically this is product marketing, by the way, if you have a product marketing team, if it's not, then it's a role of, you know, that somebody's taking on in addition to their current role, either in product or in marketing, typically in marketing. So then that person is then the person that gets pulled into any effort when you're creating content or we're looking at features and new things that are coming down the pipeway. And that person is in there going, well, how does that impact our positioning? Does this actually relate to our positioning? Does this reflect our positioning in the way that we have right now or the way we expect it to be in the future? And so in my mind, that's how we make it work internally. For sales, we need a really good sales pitch that works. That's how it makes the jump to sales. In marketing, we need positioning and ideally a positioning document that everyone in marketing can use as the starting point to build stuff. And then we've got product marketing acting as the liaison to all the other parts of the organization that needs to understand the positioning and be deep on the positioning. And they're the expert for that. Right, right. No, this is amazing. That role of being the positioning police is probably one of the toughest roles to be because one, you have to 100% get it. You have to have the support of the leadership team. And then also getting everybody on board with, you know, the messaging house that drives it. And then from there converting into certain, I don't like the word boilerplates, but then, you know, at least because people can have different ways of expressing it. But as long as they talk in the same ballpark, that makes well, sense. Here's what I think. Like people hate boilerplate because yeah. they think we're going to force you to use the boilerplate, but that's not yeah. true. Like <laughs> the boilerplate is there as a starting point. Yeah. And then if you're doing, you know, if you're doing email, 
well, you're not going to use the boilerplate. The boilerplate was not designed for email. The boilerplate <laughs> is just the starting place. So you're like, okay, that's my starting thing. How I'm going to muck with that for email. And so yeah. if I'm building, you know, a white paper or something, I'm going to start with the boilerplate stuff where I need it, but I'm going to muck with it, right? If I, yeah. even the messaging on the homepage should not look like the boilerplate, right? That's the homepage messaging has a very specific job to do. And so all we're doing with the boilerplate is we've got this messaging document. It's got the approved thing. And we're making sure that that's always the starting point so that everything is one degree separated from that. If we don't have that, what happens is we got messaging on the homepage and then someone says, oh, we got to do some email campaigns. Great. I'll look at the messaging on the homepage and then I'll do these email things. And then someone says, oh, I'm going to write this other piece of content. Oh, I'll pull all this stuff from the email. And then they write another thing. And then someone <laughs> says, oh, we're going to write a thing. And then they write another And it's like six degrees, Kevin Bacon. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're all, and then we're all the way over here. And this last thing looks nothing like what we want it to look like. And so what you'll get is this messaging drift. And so, but if I have a messaging approved boilerplate messaging document, then everything's just one degree away. It's never, yeah. it can't get that far <laughs> if we're starting with that. I used to do this myself. I started using a messaging document. First time I ever saw one was when I worked at IBM and I was like, oh, this is overkill. And it was, it was this giant 50 page document and we had to do it as part of our launch release process. And I hated it. It was stupid. But then, uh, but then at the next startup I went to, I missed it. <laughs> I was like, crap, we need to have like the startup version of that. That's like five pages long. Because if I, if you don't have one of these things, you get this drift. And I never noticed it until I had one of these things that fixed that problem. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Don't be lazy with it. But yes, make the right use of it. Makes sense. Awesome. And what are some of the reasons where, uh, you know, people would come to you and say that, hey, now is the time for repositioning? Obviously, you know, my understanding is that if a company is repositioning themselves every six months, then they're doing something terribly wrong. How many times does a company do that in their lifetime? And what, what are the reasons for it? Yeah, like, you know, I think we do it more in tech companies than, yeah. than people do in other places. But I've, I've had all extremes. Like I worked at a company once where it's VP marketing. And we had this positioning and it was so good. And then, you know, we had a strategic partnership with this other tech company and then they got acquired and that actually mucked with our positioning. So we had to go back and rework the positioning six months later, even though the position we had was really good, but you know, landscape change. So, you know, we had to do it. And then we ended up getting a strategic partner with the company that acquired them. And so the, we were all happy about that. It was sun, right? So we had this nice thing with sun and then that was going good. And then, bloody son gets acquired by Oracle. We're like, man. And so we <laughs> repositioned that thing three times in a year and a half. It was annoying. And every time we thought it was good, but you know, and after the last one, we really had to change it. And that, that would have been something you could never have predicted. I've got another one, like the very first product I ever worked on got acquired and acquired and acquired and eventually ended at SAP. And a few like a couple of years ago, I went back to look for that thing. And if you went on the page, positioning was not that different. And that company, like that product had generated hundreds of millions of revenue in the, in the interim. And there was just no need to change the positioning, I guess. So we don't really know. So here's how I recommend people approach this. So there's lots of trigger events that might happen where you need to look at the positioning. Like, so usually it's 
big move in the market, like new player comes in, maybe big acquisition has happened in the market. That changes the landscape and you, you might need to look at that. Sometimes what you've got is, you know, you've got a really close competitor. They did a big release. They closed the gap on a lot of your differentiators. And now you've got to come back and look at what, you know, do we still have this differentiated value or not? Sometimes you do the new release and now you've got all this additional cool stuff and it doesn't fit in your existing positioning. And so you're going to have to make an adjustment there. Sometimes what you've got is like big stuff happening in the world that impacts the way customers think about stuff like a big recession, for example, where, you know, if we rolled it back four or five years, and it wasn't a big recession and everything was going gangbusters, then, you know, you might be selling on a value proposition that's all around grow, grow, grow. And this is how you're going to grow your business. And then the economy gets bad and your target customers aren't worried about growth anymore. Their number one priority is like to reduce spending. And so your value proposition don't resonate anymore. So maybe you got to adjust things. So my recommendation is if there's a big thing that happens, obviously you bring this little positioning cross-functional team together and have a look at it. If it's not a big thing, so it's just a gradual creep, like gradually a new competitor is starting to cause you pain or gradually a competitor is starting to catch up with you. In those cases, I think what you actually need is a checkpoint and, and a checkpoint regularly. So when I used to run this stuff internally in companies, we'd have a checkpoint every six months. So we get the gang together every six months and we just do a speed run through the positioning. Like, okay, competitors, same as last six months, or are we starting to see someone in sales causing us some pain? Differentiated capabilities, are those the same or are people catching up to us? Is our, our value proposition actually need to change? And so if the answer is yes, then we got to go back and look at the position. If the answer is no, it's like, good, fine. I'll see you in six months. Right, right. Let's take a couple of categories, like say the CRM or probably conversation intelligence. CRM is like, there are so many products out there today. I lost count. Same thing is currently happening with conversation intelligence. Again, every week I see a couple of new products. Now look at a pro, you know category like that. Would, and given that the current situation that the market is in, everybody is trying to reduce spend. There are layoffs, so people are mindful of the every bit of spend. So do you start to reposition for situations, or do you say that hey, I still solve the same problem, and the core problem of my audience is still this? So that message. Is fine, though new competitors are coming up. I mean, typically, if we're thinking about positioning, we got kind of two things we get, we, two things are occurring, and we need to be very clear on the two things. So, one is we got a vision of where we want to be. Now, that and that vision might change every once in a while, depending on the climate or whatever, but, but that's the future. Right. And, and the vision is out there five years, 10 years. It's the story we're telling the VCs that says, look, you know, the world is changing in the future. Things are going to look like this. And that's why we're going to be super successful. And then we have reality and reality is like, I got this product against these competitors with in this market right now. And I think positioning needs to be very oriented in the present. So one of the biggest issues we have is customers being indecisive about buying a solution and they're looking for any reason to just delay the deal. And we don't want to give them any reason. So we really got to nail our positioning should really nail this story that, that explains why you should pick us over the other competitors right now. Yeah, Cause I need your cold, hard cash right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, 
you know, I think that your positioning should be really oriented in the present, but that doesn't mean you, you're not planning for it to change. You may, and you might say, look, like this new release is coming two years from now. And when we get to that, then we're a different thing at that point. So if that's, if this is the truth, right, then my positioning today has to be the best possible answer to why pick me over the other guys. So if I'm in a super crowded market, like the CRM market, I got to look at where I can win. Yeah. And I can't win everywhere because Salesforce exists. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They can win everywhere. Pretty much, pretty much, pretty much. But there's still a lot of room around the edges. And so if I'm a small competitor coming into that market, I got to look at what's my wedge. And it can't just be price, although price may be one of the things. I mean, because yeah. Salesforce is the leader, so they you pay a premium to buy yeah. a leader. But usually it's not just that. Like usually it's, you know, they're solving an unmet need that the big vendor in the market hasn't bothered to solve because, they're, you know, it isn't worth it for them to solve it. Yeah. So you could come in and say, I'm going to be the world's greatest CRM for quick serve restaurants, or I'm going to be the world's greatest CRM for dry cleaners or, you know, auto dealers. And, and there might be a lot of super specific stuff you could deliver in there that Salesforce would just never bother to build out because it's, it's not core. And they're worried about how do we go from, you know, 3 billion to 10 billion. And, and, and you're just trying to get 2 million, 3 million, 4 million revenue. So, so you're still going to have to anchor your positioning on where can we win and where can we win right now? Now your vision longer term, even though you're anchored today, you might be saying, Oh, we're quick serve restaurants. We're the CRM for quick serve restaurants, but your longer term vision might be, well, we're going to do quick serve restaurants. Then we're going to go sit down restaurants. Then we're going to do fine dining. Then we're going to get into other types of services, businesses, and eventually we're going to be big enough to either take on Siebel or we're going to, you know, we're going to split off this part of the CRM market that is actually more about services businesses. And we maybe we're not even a CRM anymore at that point. Maybe we're something else. And so you may not, you may have that vision and you should have that vision, but that's not necessarily going to be reflected in your positioning today. Cause your positioning today, it like you probably can't execute on that vision today. You can't sell on that vision. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I can see why, uh, you know, you probably work a lot with founders with, with, uh, you know, words like that sticks in my head, which is like uh, cold, hard cash right now. I'll never forget. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. We don't get to survive to execute on the vision if we're not selling some stuff right now. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So tell us a little bit about your uh, upcoming book, uh, Sales Pitch. I love the exclamation mark in in the word pitch, which is reminiscent of your uh, obviously awesome book. And, do you think um, my book cover designer people for that? I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really, really good. I think that reminds people. And uh, secondly, at the outset, I understand that it's about translating positioning into sales pitch, but give us a little more than a taste of it, something more than a hook, because September is far, far away. Come on, April, a little more. I know it's October, actually. Is when oh, it's wow. First, first week of October. It's far, far away. But, you know, books take time, man. There's a lot of I stuff know. to do. <laughs> like, you got to edit things and layout. And I don't know. Part of this is Amazon's fault. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here's here's the idea for the book. So in the first book, I was trying to just, I was trying to help companies with 
a kind of a step-by-step way of doing positioning. So if, if you want to just do it yourself inside the company, how do we do it? And so I wrote this book, obviously awesome. And that's what that book was attempting to do is the methodology that I use with clients. I didn't put it in a book. Anyone can do it. You can get your little team together. You don't have to hire me, do it yourself. You know, and that, that was, that was the idea there. Now I only went as far as we're going to break positioning down in these five component pieces. We're going to tell you how to get to the right components of that. And I kind of stopped after that. I said, Hey, if you want to test it, you should test it in a sales pitch. But I didn't get into like, here's how you build a sales pitch. And here's how you actually run that test. And here's the components of a sales pitch and what's good and what's bad. Because one, I thought that would be another book. And two, you know, I kind of had this idea, like, I think most companies know how to do a sales pitch. Like, I don't think this is actually an unsolved problem. And then I changed my mind about that. <laughs> so in the, in a lot of the workshops I was doing, you know, and even with big companies like publicly traded companies, they were coming to me with a sales pitch that, that didn't reflect their positioning at all. Yeah. Like the sales pitch was actually a completely different thing. And for the most part, what the sales pitch was, was a really features oriented walkthrough. So the majority of SaaS businesses, that's what happens in a first call. Like there's a button on the website that says, give me a demo. And if a customer clicks that button, that's exactly what they're getting, right? Is a demo. And, yep. and there isn't a lot of positioning happening in there. So we have the marketing side of the house is like stressed out over what's our value props and you know, how do we win and blah, blah, all this stuff. And then it goes over to sales and sales is kind of like, just the facts, Jack, man. Like, look, we got five drop down menus. Let me click number one, do, 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 do. number two, do, do, do. number three, do, do, do. do you like it or not? And there's this idea that the customers are going to make up their own mind, but we know that the customers often can't make up their own mind. So the research tells us that 40 to 60% of the time, a B2B purchase process ends in no decision. And it ends in no decision, not because the customer decided, oh, the status quo thing is, is, the, is great and we should just keep doing what we're doing. Sometimes that's the case. But the majority of time, the, the, they actually can't figure out what they should buy. There's too many choices. There's too many options. And they can't figure out how do they confidently pick something and then recommend it to their boss and say, this is the one we should pick. And so that we can actually help a lot in a, if, in a sales situation. Like if you think about it, why do we have sales at all? <laughs> like, like, like if, if all we're going to do is click through the menus and show them what's there, like maybe we should just have a trial version, <laughs> and leave sales out of it. I mean, the reason customers are interacting with sales is product led growth is already getting there. Then. There's a lot of products where I think that's the best thing to do. Like, and they should just do that. But there's other things where the choices are more difficult. And it's not just a matter of doing a demo. It's a matter of getting consensus across a purchase team and making a recommendation to the economic buyer. And that recommendation has to make a lot of sense. And so in these situations, I think the sales rep can do a really good job potentially of being a guide in that situation and saying, look, like you have choices. And, and let's talk about your choices and here's when you would, here's when you would use this approach. Here's when you use this approach and here's when you would pick something like ours. And so my attempt in this next book 
is much like I tried to provide a, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, this is how you actually do positioning. If you don't want to hire a consultant or you don't have the money to hire a consultant, I'm trying to do the same thing for the sales pitch. Like I'm trying to say, look, like if, if we've got positioning, here's how we map it into a sales pitch that is compelling and makes your differentiation from the other alternatives in the market clear in a way that helps a customer make a confident decision. That's what we're going for. Right, right. And one of the common things that I see uh, a lot these days is that, you know, people, even before they come to your demo or say schedule a call with your salespeople, they're talking to communities and getting to understand, maybe even getting a demo from the community about your product. So the empowering doesn't just stop with your salespeople, but you have to empower it across the channel. Totally, yeah. totally. So like the, 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 this is the thing, like if we do positioning and it only lives over on the marketing side of the house, we're not doing it right. Or if it only lived over in sales, we're not doing it right. Like it actually has to cross both. And I, I think we understand how to take positioning and turn that into messaging. But I don't think a lot of companies understand how their positioning gets reflected on the sales side of the house. So that's a different thing. And so what we end up getting is, you know, customers do their homework right? There's never been so much information available to customers freely out on the internet, including doing a trial of the product itself and mucking around in there and doing stuff. And so, but in spite of all that, half the time they don't make a decision to purchase half the time. So we got to fix that problem. And how we fix that problem is commercial teaching. Like we need to actually help customers understand their options and where the trade-offs are so that they can make very well-informed decisions in a confident way that they feel good about. That's the only way we're going to get over this 50% dropout in our pipeline. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I'm I'm so looking forward to this book. I'm almost imagining it's like an Apple's phone release and everybody's standing on your street waiting for the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited. Like, I wish I could get this sucker out faster. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, I actually have last week re received a draft that is like wow. getting close, almost final. We're down to like niggly line edits now. But yeah, it, it takes a while to work through the book machinery. So coming to we'll probably do pre-orders in september yeah yeah no i love that i've done about eight books from my side but not as popular as yours but i get how difficult it is so yeah, yeah. it's hard right like writing a yeah. book is not an easy thing yeah. but you yeah. know what writing the book is easy it's producing the book that yeah. sucks <laughs> making people buy sucks even well more. then there's that just yeah. a whole other kettle of fish. Like book marketing is a whole thing. I've learned a lot on the last book. Like, I don't know about you, but I learned a lot where I was like, oh, this is marketing a book is a particular kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it works if, uh, you know, you have a consulting business built around it because that's a tool there. So that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's part of it too, right? Is how does the book fit into the business and whatever. But, you know, I was more worried about that with the first book because in the first book, like I have these first calls with people and founder would call me and the founder would say, I kind of get positioning, but I'm not sure I really get it. And so we would have the whole first call with me just kind of defining this is what positioning is. This is why it matters. And, you know, here's what I'm going to do to help you solve it. But that's a lot for a 
first call, right? So we'd usually have to have a second call. And I was like, it would be really good if I just had a book and I, you know, people could read it and then you decide whether you want to call me or not. <laughs> I don't have to be in the room. And so I thought that that, so that was part of my thinking when I built the first book. This book's a little bit different, um, you know, in that I just feel like this is a book that deserves to exist. Like, I think it's kind of crazy like it's kind of bananas to me that we don't have a book that tells you how to make a sales pitch. That doesn't exist. I just assumed that book had been written 59 times. Like there's a hundred million books to tell you how to do stuff in sales, like how to handle objections, how to build, you know, how to close a deal, how to build rapport with a client, how to move a deal along stages. You know, there's all these books about, and these are all super important sales skills, but there's this idea that the pitch just magically appears. <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah. crazy town to me. Like, I can't believe nobody's written that book. So I feel like a book should exist that does that. I don't know if mine's going to be the, the best one, but it might be the only one. <laughs> no, it's going to be. It's going to be. I'm so looking forward to it. Thanks. Awesome. So that brings us to the second part of our podcast, which we call the rapid fire section, your favorite section. And uh, I'm going to shoot uh, five questions at you and uh, you can speak whatever comes to your mind. The answers need not be short as rapid fire questions are. So are you ready? Okay. Yeah, totally ready. Here we go. Question number one. What is your usual reaction to, hey, April, look at our website and uh, tell us or give us an assessment of our positioning? Yeah, this bugs me a lot. And I get asked that question a lot and it drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> so there's a few things that I think about that. One, your website needs to resonate for your target buyer. Yeah. And unless I'm your target buyer, I can't assess that. Like if you're selling something to airline mechanics, how would I know whether your positioning is good or not? Because I know nothing about how an airline mechanic feels or should feel. Like I think that's a bit arrogant. It would be arrogant of any consultant anywhere to say, oh, yes, I can look at your site and decide whether or not it's good and, and this positioning is resonating. No, all I can do is look at the language. And I may or may not think you have good copywriting skills, but that doesn't actually tell me much about your positioning. Like, I don't know if your value is differentiated because I don't even know who your competitors are. And I don't know if your value resonates for your buyers because I'm not your buyer. So I think it's really hard to assess a company's positioning, particularly in B2B from the outside. B2C is different, right? Like if I'm looking at the website for Cola, I'm a Cola customer, fine. But if it's B2B and a lot of this stuff is aimed at a very specific kind of a buyer, I don't think we can just look at that. Like the example I keep giving is, you know, there's this, this conference that I love in Montreal every year called Startup Fest. If, if, you know, everyone should go to this conference. It's great. But they have this bit that I can't stand, which is called Pitch the Grannies. And so they have <laughs> these little old ladies come in. And then they have all the startups come and they pitch to grandmothers and the grandmothers decide who has the best pitch. And this drives me crazy. I'm like, unless your target market is grandmothers, <laughs> I, don't, 
I don't think you should be doing this. <laughs> and I don't think we should be building our pitch for grandmothers unless we're actually selling it to grandmothers. Yeah, yeah. No, the idea to keep it simple is different, but taking it to the whole different level. Is it's like, just, you know, we want to keep it simple, of course, but within the context of our buyer. Like I spend a lot of time selling database stuff to database people and you can get really, really technical there. And those folks will say that's simple. Like everybody's idea of simple is different. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. All right. So question number two. I somewhere heard you say that don't position against ghosts. I know you're not talking yeah. about something spooky, but can you expand <laughs> on that? <laughs> so I, I, yeah. So I, I see this very a lot in, in SaaS startups and, and what you'll get is, and it's usually marketing and product sales. You don't get this so much, but marketing and product will, you know, be looking at the competitive landscape and they'll say, oh my gosh, there's these folks in the market and they look just like us. And I get their ads and I see their ads or if on the product side, you know, I researched them, they just raised around and ooh, they're going to be coming after us because look <laughs> at what they do. It looks just like us. But then you walk over to sales and sales has never seen this company in a deal. So this is like the ghost, you know, they're living in my head rent free, but they don't actually exist in, in the customer's mind. <laughs> so I think in positioning, like the product team may still want to keep an eye on them because they're worried about the roadmap and where we're going in the future. And so they may want to keep an eye on them as a horizon competitor. But from a positioning standpoint, I'm trying to answer the question, why pick us over all the other people that a customer might consider? If they're not landing on a short list and they never come up in a sales call, then a customer is not considering them and I don't have to worry about positioning against them. It's just that simple. Yeah, yeah. No, it seems like, uh, you know, you are subconsciously there in so many team meetings because I've seen this so many times in my life and I'm sure you've seen a lot. Crazy. Right. So what's your uh, number one dipstick to check if the positioning that you worked on is working out or not? Yeah. So my recommendation is, is to not do what people want to do. Like, so what people want to do is they want to get the positioning. They want to turn it into messaging on a landing page and do an AB test on a landing page. And I think that's a terrible test of positioning for a long list of reasons. Like one is we're not really testing positioning at this point. We're testing copywriting skills, landing page design. I don't know if that's the right traffic going to those landing pages. Am I even getting enough traffic to do a statistically significant AB test? I mean, if this yeah. is B2B, this, the answer to that is almost always no. Yeah. And so I think that's a bad way to test positioning, in my opinion. A much right. better way in B2B, if you have a sales team, take that positioning, translate it into a sales pitch, and then get that sales pitch in front of qualified prospects. So if I have a salesperson who's comfortable with the pitch because they've practiced it a lot and they've learned it yeah. and I got a qualified prospect, I'm going to get a lot of signal in that sales meeting. So I'm going to see where is the customer looking like this, you know, <laughs> or where is the customer going, getting really excited. Yeah. I'm going to hear the comments the customer is making. Like they might be saying, oh, so you're just like Salesforce and you're not like Salesforce or, you know, are they comparing us to the right things? Do they understand our value? And so- if I've done a lot of these pitches, I can compare how effective the pitch is versus the old pitch. And an experienced salesperson, after they've done a bunch of these pitches, will be able to come to me and say, oh, this is way better than the old pitch. 
we call that a pass <laughs> or they come to me after they've done a bunch and said, yeah, this is okay, but I'm going back to the old pitch. Cause I think that worked better. Now we've failed and we need yeah. to go back and relook at the positioning. Right. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Cool. So here's question number four. When you work on a new product that doesn't seem to fit in an existing category, would you position it into a relatively closer category that you see, or would you go into category design? So first of all, this, this phrase category design drives <laughs> me a little crazy, right? Because I think anytime we're doing positioning, we are drawing the boundaries around yeah. where we're going to position ourselves. Right. So, I mean, in good positioning, I don't think we're ever positioning in an existing market and saying we're just like the other guys. That would be bad positioning. Right. <laughs> so whenever we talk about, well, what is the market we intend to win? We are doing some, we're, we're get some specifics around that. So yeah. if that's what category design is, then I think we're always doing that. But sometimes what we're doing is positioning an existing category. So we talked about CRM earlier. I yeah. think there's a lot of room in the CRM market right now. That is an absolutely enormous market and I think there is a lot and, and I think Salesforce is showing signs of weakness in places. And I think there is an excellent opportunity for companies to come in and eventually challenge Salesforce, but how you're not going to do that is come in when you're 30 people in a basement and say, we're the CRM for everybody. <laughs> Cause trust me, you're not. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you've got this new thing, you, you, there's a few different ways you can position it. You might be coming in and saying, well, you know, we're, we're carving off a very big, interesting section of an existing market, even if our vision longer term isn't to be that. It just might be the easiest way to sell it right now and say, well, it's a, you know, it's a CRM for quick serve restaurants, even though, you know, fast forward 10 years, we want to be like the operating system for restaurants, yeah. but it might be easiest to just come in with this first thing. So we need to think about that. So if, if I've got this new thing, it, I might want to position it in an existing market, but in a sub-segment of it. And so I'd look at that and see, does, does that work for us? Like, can we contextualize our value? If it doesn't, then I think I'd be looking at, well, are there adjacent markets to that that actually work, that I, where I could carve off a slice, where I could absolutely win the segment? And only if I couldn't do any of those would I consider, well, okay, I got no other choice now. I'm going to have to build this new thing and be a market of one at the beginning in this new thing and go through all the pain and effort of educating the, the market on, yes, you do have this problem. Yes, you need a solution to it. And yes, I'm the best solution for that. So my opinion on this is, it's much easier, more efficient, and generally more effective to orient the customer around something they already understand right. and say, yeah, we're like that, but for this, right? Yeah. Then, yeah. then to come in and say, no, we're, we're this whole new thing is a flu flummer. And you're like, what's a flu flummer? <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. So there's this problem. I don't have that problem. Yes, you do. Let me explain why you do. And then, you know, and then take them on this whole journey. I think that's harder. So I think we, we want to create new, new categories when it is essential, when there is no existing category for us to, to leverage. But 
we always want to leverage an existing category if we can, right? If it can contextualize our value and we can draw a border around here's where we win, then I think we want to do that because it's easier and it's better. And ultimately, if you look at this, like, you know, I did this little survey of like all the companies that went public on the NASDAQ for the last five years, 93% of those go public positioning themselves in an existing category, like without creating a new one. So this idea that we can only be successful by creating a new category, that's hogwash. That's not true at all. Right, right. But let me give you a, an interesting example, right? So uh, say going by the example that you gave about CRMs for quick serve restaurants, that makes right. a lot of sense because that's like, you know, you're setting context for you are in the CRM category, but for somebody. But right. when you look at a relatively different product, let's say, let, let me take an example of a product like Gong. Okay. So Gong, that was already a category called meeting recording tools or meeting recording yeah. software, but yeah. they created an entirely new category called conversation intelligence, then moved to revenue intelligence and they told an entirely different story. So when does right. something like that make sense? At what point does somebody take a call? Yeah. Yeah. So where you often see this and where it works really well is if you've got a company, so there's an existing market, right? And then you've yeah. got a company that comes in that market and they kill it, right? So they're now the leaders of that market. Like when you, you know, and if you look at Gong, right? They didn't start out with the new category thing. They came yeah. in, they were yeah. in the market, just like everybody else. They leveraged what everybody understood about that market. It's part of the reason why they grow so fast, right? Yeah. Now we're now we're the kings of this market. Now where do we go? So once you're leading a market, there's a, there's a lot of ways that you can continue to evolve in a way that keeps your competitors on the back foot. So right. if I just define the boundaries and I don't, I don't change anything about the way I define that market, well, now I'm leaving myself a little bit open to the competition to come in and be a fast follower and squish me in the market that I actually kind of built, right? right. So although they didn't in that case, they came into the existing market. So one of the ways you do that is you broaden the boundaries of the market and you say, Oh, and it's not just call recording. We still do call recording, but yeah. we do all this other stuff. And all the other stuff is actually super differentiating. So if I call myself call recording at this point, I'm kind of underselling what I do. Yeah. So I'm going to stretch the boundaries of that market. It still includes call recording. That's a subset of that market, but I'm stretching the boundary now. And I'm going to call that conversational intelligence. Yeah. Oh, now you're, now your little call recording competitors. Oh, they're in trouble because <laughs> you're basically saying, oh, now there's this bigger thing. And then that call recording thing, that's just, a, that's just a little subset. We're the kings of all of this. Why would <laughs> right. you just do call recording when you could do all this stuff? This yeah. is very, very common for market leaders mm. once you own the market. But if you come in for and you're not, you don't own the market. <laughs> that's bananas. <laughs> you don't get to do that. <laughs> exactly. You don't get to do that because, you know, again, you're back to this whole, you know, I'm coming out of nowhere with, with no beachhead and know nothing and in the market and saying, Oh, I, I'm going to be the king of this other thing that you've never heard of. Right. Right. No, that's so they are sense. still, if you say, when they say conversational intelligence, they're building on what the client knows about call recording and yeah. knows them for like, they're known as call recording software. So you right. can't do that if you're brand new. Right. Right. No, absolutely. That's nail on the head. Love that. Right. So here's the final rapid fire. What's your response to the generic, just talk to the customers and it's a solution for everything in marketing and sales? So here's, here's the thing that used to get me, like when I was internal as a VP marketing, we come out with this cool thing. 
like something we were sure was just killer, like a, a feature, right? So we'd have it internally. We'd have this thing. It was super cool. And the value of it was incredible. And we knew the value of it was incredible for customers. Yeah. And then you'd go and serve, you know, then you launch the thing and no one's using the feature. You're like, what the heck? No one's using this amazing feature. And like beta customers loved it. Everyone's like, what? what's going on here? And then you go in and talk to the customer and say, well, what about that feature? And they'd be like, yeah, no, don't really get it. No, yeah, <laughs> don't use it. And and then you're like, well, why is that? Is it be it like, because it's not like they tried the feature and then rejected it because it was valueless. No, they didn't even try it. Why did they not try it? Because they didn't understand it. Why did they not understand it? Because we didn't do a good job explaining it. So if I just talked to the customer, the result of that would be, that's a stupid feature. We should have never even bought it. Instead, what we what we do if I was there is we go back and say, let's try it again, but we're going to do it better this time. We're going to do a better job in sales pitching it. We're going to do a better job in marketing, describing the value of this thing. And often when we ran at it again, it became our most beloved feature. So this is the problem. Customers are experts in pain. They're yes. experts in their own situation. They are not experts in solutions. It is our job to educate customers on why things in our product matter. It's our job to do the translation from features to value for them. It's our job to educate them about aspects of their world that they may not even understand because they're not eating, sleeping, and breathing the solution part of that. Yeah. They only feel the pain. And so we can absolutely go to customers and learn a lot about their situation, their pain, uh, everything else they've got in their stack, how they operate, what they do, all that stuff is the domain of customers. But if we're going to customers and saying like, you know, what do you like about us? Th th this is often not amazing question to ask a customer. <laughs> like, we're often not like, we have to own solutions and we have to understand the customer's situation in a way that we can say, this is valuable to you for this reason and that resonates. But we got to teach them. Right, right. Yeah, you know, half of Apple's products would have never seen the market if they had asked customers and started. That, this is exactly it. Like customers don't know what they want until they see it. And then they're like, oh gosh, that, yeah, I want that. But they got to understand it. And it's our job to be ahead of that. Like we're, we're the people that understand solutions, not them. Yeah, yeah. So you've hit five goals out of five questions. All penalty, you win. That's done. Oh, great. <laughs> what do I win? What do I win? Is there is there swag? Yeah, you do win, uh, you know, some swag from SAS Prince. Why not? Oh, oh fantastic. <laughs> wear it to all. I hope it's a t-shirt. I wear it to all my other. Uh, Absolutely. Podcasts. If you do that, we'll, t we'll send 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the other podcasters would be mad if I showed up with the swag. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. So thank you so much, April. I think uh, we had so much fun. We covered quite a lot for all the listeners today. You know, if they want to stay in touch with you, get connected, what's the best place to find you? Yeah. So these days I'm most active on LinkedIn. I used to be really active on Twitter, but I don't yeah. know. Twitter's weird right now. It's, it's Twitter's having some changes. So, yes, it's so, a lot. so, uh, so I'm spending a lot more time over on LinkedIn because I think that that's more fun. And then my website is aprildunford.com and yeah. you can find me there. And then in October, there'll be a new book. Hopefully. Yes. 
absolutely looking forward to that and um, if you have to share a parting message to all our audience most of them are from the saas world so what would it be i don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay my parting message would be yeah stay cool you know stay sassy love it love That's it. it awesome thank you so much april really really appreciate your time every minute that we spent here it was brilliant it was obviously awesome and uh, i'm sure you know people are going to take a lot from this conversation and all the best for your upcoming book really looking forward to it and i'll definitely share my thoughts as soon as i read it and definitely uh, you know probably share a few copies with some friends as well cool well thanks a lot for having me i appreciate it thank you so much 